The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And I say this, I guess, more as an academic than as a former politician. A NATO application in the Finnish case it's not a question of if, but it's a question of when. And if you ask me when, I say it's not a question of days, it's not a question of weeks, it's not a question of years, it's a question of months. And for a small state to survive existentially, it has to be perfect in timing. And I don't know exactly when the timing is going to be, but I think basically if it's announced at some stage, it's going to have to be a done deal. It could be based on Article 10 of, of NATO, which basically is an invitation by the NATO states to take us in. But there are interim periods there with ratifications and others. So, yeah, I uh, hope you guys welcome us into NATO. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 16th, 2022. Alexander Stubb is the former prime minister, foreign minister, and finance minister of Finland. Back in 2008, after the Russian invasion of Georgia, he worked on the ceasefire between Russia and Georgia, giving him a valuable perspective on much of what's going on today in Ukraine. He joined me for a conversation covering his experience negotiating that ceasefire in 2008, his experienced impressions of Vladimir Putin and Sergei Lavrov, the differences between this Russian action in Ukraine now and its previous aggressions, and what it all means for European unity and for Finland's place in NATO. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 16th. Negotiating with the Russians with Alexander Stubb. Let's start by going back a few years to 2008, when you were the foreign minister in Finland, and as a result of the Finnish presidency of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Uh, You were facing quite a crisis when Russia and Georgia went to war. After Russia sent troops into Georgia, I believe in early August, to repel the Georgian military attempt to retake South Ossetia, describe the role of the OSCE and your personal role in that, talking to the Georgians and the Russians. Sure. I mean, it was pretty much what I call the 080808 moment. So it was the first time that Russia brought military conflict back to uh, its neighborhood and uh, basically started to redefine borders. 
contrary to what the basic statutes of the OSC would say. And uh, I was chair of the OSC at the time and flew in actually to Belize, the capital of Georgia, together with uh, French Foreign Minister Bernard Kushner. We spent about 48 hours there, started to work on a five-point ceasefire agreement on my laptop. And then we parted. I went via Jerevan in Armenia to Moscow to continue the discussions with Sergei Lavrov. And then President Sarkozy flew in from Paris to finalize the deal with then President Medvedev and Prime Minister Putin. So, you know, it was the first uh, touch that I had with peace mediation and the first time Russia went to war uh, in recent time, if you don't count Chechnya. Talk a little bit about those those details of those meetings. So when you're working on the, the, the points that ended up in the ultimate ceasefire, what were those negotiations like? Did you get the sense that the people you were talking to, especially on the Russian side, that they really had any leeway for negotiation or was everything going back to Moscow? No, I mean, you have to look at it on a few levels. The first level is the international community. So what you know, began in 080808, then started off this sort of uh, diplomatic phone frenzy, as I call it. So I was on the phone with Condoleezza Rice, with uh, Ban Ki-moon, with Javier Solana, with Carl Bildt, uh, you know, you name it. So the international community tries to get an understanding what's going on. And of course, then also with Sergei Lavrov at the time. And the way in which it works is that, you know, you have a basic skeleton of what ceasefire agreements usually look like, you know, putting down your arms, opening humanitarian corridors, uh, respecting territorial sovereignty, etc, uh, etc. Et and I think in this particular case, it's uh, quite a lot easier than, than what we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment, because the stakes were lower for Russia which kind of meant that Shakasvili, who was president of Georgia at the time, he was willing to sign anything. Uh, so we got that done. And then mm-hmm. the Russians were a little bit more complicated. They wanted to add uh, a sixth point, I think it was on European security or something like that. But it's pretty straightforward. There's one element of theater which takes place, which is what you do with the media. And then there's an element of really hardcore uh, talks. And the key there is to try to stop the escalation of the conflict and and get a ceasefire agreement. We did that in five days. uh, And I guess as we speak, we are in day 19 in the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I do want to get later to the the big differences between the two scenarios. But do I recall hearing that during those ceasefire points that there was actually some disagreement over whether one of the points would be in parentheses or whether... There, there, there was some very minutiae type details being negotiated when really the issue was the troops were firing at each other and everybody knew that it was going to stop and it was just a matter of how to get there through the diplomatic language. Yeah, I mean, there was, I think originally, if I recall, and obviously, you know, uh, this is a long time ago, originally there were five points in the agreement and then the one that stayed in parentheses was the sixth one and that was the one that was sort of born in Moscow in the Kremlin in the negotiations between Sarkozy, uh, Medvedev and Putin. Uh, Off the top of my head I don't exactly remember 
which one it was, but I'm sure it can be discovered and found. You mentioned Foreign Minister Lavrov. Talk a little bit about your interactions with him and his skills as a negotiator, as a representative of of his government, and what it was like to work with him that could shed light on those who may be talking with him in the coming days. Well, the question is, are they going to be talking to Lavrov? I mean, it is my understanding that he's not in the core of the business at the moment, but little do I know, I'm just a humble professor nowadays. Now, what you have to understand about Lavrov is that he's one of the most seasoned diplomats in the game. So, you know, first of all, he's, he's, he's born and raised in the midst of the foreign ministry. He was the uh, Russian UN ambassador for 10 years in New York. And I think he's up to about 17 or 18 years of being foreign minister. It's a little bit like good old Gromyko uh, in the Soviet Union. So, you know, he's been around the ropes. Uh, he knows his stuff. He's the kind of person when you discuss with him, he can be actually very pleasant face to face. But when you start going into a discomfort zone, that's when uh, you start getting this sort of onslaught of what I call whataboutism. So, uh, you know, when you start poking him a little bit in the direction that, well, you know, why did you do that? And then immediately comes, well, what about you in the West? Why did you do that? And then when you start going into, say, you know, minute details about arms agreement, he can easily start sort of diverting into different directions. So, you know, he's a really tough negotiator. But you did back then get to the ceasefire agreement. Unfortunately, only a few months later, I believe right around the end of 2008, the Russians refused to extend the mission of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe in the disputed areas there. And I'm wondering if that, how that made you feel about the overall negotiations. Yes, there was a ceasefire, but ultimately what did it accomplish and what was the lesson learned across much of Europe from that whole episode? Yeah, for those of you who weren't sort of in the room or or don't recall uh, what happened, we then ended up having a ministerial meeting in Helsinki in December in 2008. And in that ministerial meeting, you know, we're trying to approve a final document, which had a whole bunch of details. And uh, I think we had something like 53 foreign ministers in town. And uh, it all basically hung up on on Russia, which at the end of the day didn't approve it. uh, And at the end of the day also actually uh, refused to continue uh, the mission in, in, in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So what was my sentiment at the time? I was pissed off, you know, like one is. I'm sorry for using language, but this right. is not a family podcast, so I guess you can do it. But but the truth is that I was extremely disappointed uh, with the Russians and uh, with Lavrov. And I, you know, I didn't hide it either. But, uh, you know, that's what conference diplomacy is, is like. And, and when you're a big power, no matter which organization you're in, sometimes you set your own rules. And obviously, we've seen with Russia, if not then, at least lately, they certainly do that. I will encourage our listeners to search on the internet for you at that time, because yes, uh, you did display your angry face in some photos that were spread (laughs) around the world. Uh, uh. We we talked about Lavrov a bit, but let's let's go to Putin, because you've met with uh, Putin several times. You've been in the room with him several times for long discussions 
and uh, negotiations. And you've described him as shrewd and analytical and even cold. And I'd like to discuss each of those. What did you see and hear from him in person that either gave you the impression that he was a shrewd calculator or reinforced what you'd already heard from other sources about that side of his personality? Well, you know, we Finns are, are, are more for sort of underexpression rather than overexpression. To say that I've met him many times is exaggeration. I think to say that I met him a few times is, is more correct. And very much the person in the room, uh, not to the center of the stage. And by that, I mean to say that I was usually a minister, either foreign minister or trade minister. And I was in the delegation with one of my presidents, either Tarja Halonen or Sauli Niinistö, or then Prime Minister Katainen. Mm -hmm. Now, Putin is, is, is in the meetings, he's very well prepared. So he's got his usual speaking notes. And quite often he starts by sort of reading out, you know, it's minute detail about you know, salmon in, in, the, in, the, in the lake of Inari and these kinds of things. And, and then you start going into real business. But, you know, he knows his stuff. Our presidents have always worked with him through an interpreter. On both sides, the interpreters are usually actually very good. The Russian one is Sergei Belyayev, who worked for many years at the Russian embassy in Helsinki and actually is now the latest person from the Russian foreign ministry to say that there'll be military technical retaliation if Finland joins NATO. So, you know, it belongs to the gang, if you will, speaks fluent, fluent, perfect Finnish. Uh, and then on the other side, we have someone called Marit, who's a really good interpreter as well. So you get a sense of what's going on. Then there's always the rigmarole of him being late. You know, it's anywhere from, say, one hour to four hours, kind of stuff that you have to live with. And uh, but yeah, he is shrewd. Uh, he's analytical. He's uh, intellectual. Uh, he's cold. He knows his stuff. So he's not, you know, he's not a pushover, as we can see. Did you get the sense in those meetings? Because there, there are two different elements of that, right? The first element is being well-prepared, having your talking points the way that you want them, and, and being able to talk at length about the, the spin that you want to put on things. And, and that's definitely a calculating thing. Analytical implies some sense of being able to think in the moment, being able to adapt to what's happening in the discussions. Did you get that sense? Was, was he more wed to his talking points and not budging? Or was he able to read what the others in the room were doing and, and respond to try to make some points that way? Listen, you don't become the president or the leader of Russia if you don't have a cognitive capacity which goes beyond the normal. Uh, so certainly he was able to react to situations uh, in a very impressive way. He was able to connect the dots. He'd bring in something, say, on the Middle East or Syria. He'd bring in a memory from Afghanistan. He'd make a reference to Stalin. You know, he'd talk about some detail about, say, a NATO mission somewhere, or he'd be talking about missile negotiations with the Americans. He'd make reference to George W. Bush, to Condoleezza Rice. So, you know, the, the guy knew his stuff. And that's the case with most of these leaders. You see, the problem is that quite often we get our image or our picture or projection of a particular individual from the international media. And quite often, you know, it's a journalist who's either, you know, met the person once or, or just has an impression. And then we start spinning out these sort of half-truths about the people. 
and quite often no one is like their public uh, image. But certainly I would say that out of all the hundreds of leaders or ministers that I've met over the years, uh, Putin is someone who you will remember because he was so well uh, versed in his dossier. Did you ever see him display emotion or was he always cold and stoic? No, I mean, I think, you know, when human beings meet, quite often there is this element that, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's a psychological, quite a natural reaction. You know, you, you, you want to please the person that you're discussing with. So there is the occasional smile. There's the occasional courtesy. And, you know, the Russian way is, is, is very, you know, you know, it's very polite when there is a polite discussion. You know, the, 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 the language that is used Etc. Uh, Etc. Et can be quite warm. So so yes, you know, it, it's not about everyone being sort of completely cold. Okay, yeah, I met a few of those leaders as well, but but Putin certainly could be, you know, as as charming as anyone. I ask these questions about Putin because many in the Western media of late have been focusing on him losing his mind in some way. Yeah, I think that's rubbish. Losing his uh, grip. Yeah. yeah and, I don't know whether it's because of COVID isolation that they think it's happening or <laughs> mental decline, but no, what do you think? No, no, I think, you know, my take here is it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive to what we would usually hear in the West and certainly from someone like me who is an avid, you know, transatlanticist and, and Westerner. I, I think some people simply don't understand, you know, the Russian soul or the Russian mind. You know, Russian leadership, has always been very centralized, right? And that means that, you know, the, 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 the most horrible times that the Russians have ever experienced are, are, are periods of, of disorder and chaos. When the Romanovs came in as the Tsarist family, it was very much a hierarchical top-down leadership where the Tsar was the leader with God-given rights. And underneath him or Catherine the Great, as the case might have been, her, there were the princes who would support him or her, whichever, whatever happened. Uh, and of course, now you have the political and governance support of the great leader, Putin, uh, and then the oligarchs who support him financially. And now people talk about Putin being in, irrational. And I would argue that well, quite the contrary, he's rational from his perspective, but irrational from a Western perspective. Uh, and by that, I mean to say that for him, it's about historic, great Russia, reinstituting Russia. You know, I'll, I'll use language which is quite familiar in the United States. Make Russia great again type of a mentality is, is what he drives. So for him, it means that there's, you know, one uh, language, which is Russian, one religion, which is Orthodox, and then uh, one leader, which is himself. And he's, he's, he's working on his legacy. So all this stuff about, you know, long tables and him being in COVID isolation, I, to be honest, I think it's Western rubbish. You know, we need to get our facts right. Have you seen any changes when you see him speaking, these long presentations of the last few weeks? Have you seen any change from what you first witnessed a couple of decades ago? You know, David, I, I can't be in the business of psychoanalysis, especially not person that I last saw in a room in, in I think it must have been 2014 or something like that and and you know for anyone to make an assessment then say you know eight years later on the basis of 
uh, a discourse given on television in, in, in a foreign language. I just think it's unfair and it's kind of unprofessional. And, and to be honest, I, I think that whole debate about, you know, his psychological state of mind, I, you know, I think I'm not saying it's a fiction of imagination, but I think we should focus on what the real mentality of a Russian leader is. What has he said? What does he want to do? He wants to, number one, take over Ukraine. Number two, push back the frontiers of NATO. And number three, prevent Finland and Sweden from joining NATO. And whatever his mental state is, he's doing what he's doing. No, no, no point in going to the psychiatrist here. And, and none of those things are necessarily irrational, uh, unless you assume that rationality means you never conduct an unprovoked aggression against a neighbor. But then, then it's a matter of definitions, not a matter of actual rational calculation. Exactly. And, you know, it could be considered to be rational from his perspective. But then Absolutely. again, you know, we in the West can say that, what the heck, you know, in seven days, he achieved everything that he didn't want to achieve. In other words, he wanted the Russification of Ukraine. Well, it became the Europeanization of Ukraine. <laughs> he wanted to split the West. Well, I've never seen the West or the European Union as united as we are now. He wanted to split the transatlantic partnership. Well, it's transatlantic 2.0. He wanted to split NATO. NATO has a new purpose. And he wanted to keep Finland and Sweden out of NATO. Hmm. We got 62% in favor. So good luck, Putin. It seems to be a different conflict in all of those ways than the, the previous ones, like Georgia in 2008, even Crimea in, in 2014, because those were limited actions that he wanted to create these frozen conflicts that he could then exploit for his own purposes. But it was not fully investing Russian national assets in, in an all-out invasion of a large neighbor. Many observers didn't anticipate this. The most common observation as of a month or two ago was, well, perhaps he'll try to expand the territory around Luhansk and Donetsk and create, those, create some stability for those areas, put some pressure on the Ukrainian government, maybe some limited incursions. What did we all get so wrong? I don't know. And, you know, I, I, I've been in, in, in the business of civil service. I've been in the business of politics and, and now I'm in the business of academia. And I come from a country that is fairly familiar with Russia. And my assessment, with all of the available knowledge that I had, was that he would do exactly what he did in Georgia. Just like you said, create two frozen conflicts, one in Abkhazia, one in South Ossetia. He would do exactly what he did in 2014 with the Crimean Peninsula, which, by the way, as a military operation, was rather successful and easy from his perspective. Uh, and he would have done now in 2022 exactly the same thing. So, uh, you know, the game, the, the playbook is always the same. You, you move the forces, you put in some disinformation, uh, you try to get the other side to react. If they don't react, you do it, and then you declare the independence or of the territories in question, and then you move in your peacekeeping troops. So I thought he wanted to create a frozen conflict in Donetsk and Luhansk. So then he would have those two, the three that I mentioned previously, then he would have Nagorno-Karabakh and, and Transnistria. I thought that was the Russian way. I never thought he'd be crazy enough to go into Ukraine the way in which he did. He has now. You can then <laughs> argue whether he succeeded or not for me. I'm not a military expert, but if he wanted to go in in 24 hours and get some flowers and handshakes, it doesn't look very good for him at the moment. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You mentioned the uh, information warfare side of this, and I have to grudgingly admit that the 2014 propaganda part of that was pretty good in terms of talking about the Russian presence in Crimea and what was happening there. It had its holes, but overall it was a well choreographed propaganda operation. The one for Ukraine now seems to be very amateurish, and it seems to be aimed at the Russian people, like the previous ones have been, but in a much shallower way, in almost just a a jingoistic, patriotic way, but not really going through all of the steps that they went through in previous information operations. I'm wondering for your perspective on this, do do you think the Russian information warfare part of this has been that bad? And if so, why? I think probably the Ukrainian has been so good that the Russians have sort of fallen into oblivion. But I think you're right to point this out. You know, we live in a world where everything can be weaponized. And one of the key weapons, even in a sort of classic conventional warfare situation, is uh, information war. You know, the Ukrainians have just dominated the world on this. Uh, And you can obviously see that then in the sort of uh, solidarity and support that Ukraine has, has gotten. Russia has failed utterly and totally. Then again, this time around, they were willing to use military force kill not only uh, soldiers, but also civilians. And in that sense, it's a lost cause. Back home, though, it looks like he has succeeded quite well. And the reason for that is twofold. One, the population and the demography of of Russia is is, is sort of tilting towards the elderly. And two, the elderly get their information from state TV and, and state radio. So it's an uphill battle to try to win that war. And we also have to remember that in the Russian DNA, Russian psyche, ever since they were kids, they've been told that, you know, Russia is isolated. The rest of the world is out there to get you. The Mongols were attacking in the olden days. World War II was the Nazis, and now it's NATO. They are surrounding us. They hate us. We need to fight back heroically. So that's the narrative that you, you, you get in Russia. So they probably succeeded fairly well at home. Uh, but abroad, they lost the battle 100 to nil. Huh? I wonder if that narrative with the Russian people, yes, the Mongols, the Nazis got it. But the last several decades, the Russians have had more access to Western media, and I would argue more objective sources than ever before. And certainly the Russian people know that the Warsaw Pact was the only alliance I know of whose only major action was to invade its own members, as opposed to NATO, which was a defensive alliance that never attacked the Warsaw Pact. And I'm wondering if this narrative is as effective with the Russian people now as a similar narrative would have been decades ago. Well, yes and no, but let me turn this around just so that we all understand the context here. 
every nation has its myths, right? It's sort of national ethos. So, you know, Finland has its story of independence, the war around 1918, the winter war, the war of continuation, you know, we were heroic in World War II for every one Finnish soldier, we killed 10 Russian soldiers and, you know, the great oppressor and the rest of it. And let me turn it around. You know, I'm a big fan of the United States. You know, I was an exchange student there in 1985, 86, and I got my undergraduate degree at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, from 1989 to 1993. And the national ethos in the United States and the propaganda is very strong as well. You know, there's pledging allegiance to the flag. There's this notion of the founding fathers and the greatest nation in the world and the home of the free and the brave. And, and you know, these myths that exist. And of course, in this context, the big bad guy during the Cold War was always the Soviet Union. I remember starting studying at Furman and in our dorm, there was a, you know, I guess you could say neocon in these old days who said, Gorbachev is antichrist and the Soviet Union is the evil empire. So what I'm saying is that, you know, this ethos is there and, and we live in these virtual realities and, and we're pumped with information that is very difficult for us cognitively to reject at times. So it goes both ways. You know, we are westernized with whatever information that we get and read. Probably you and I very anglicized in that sense. And the Russians are Russified. And, and it's, it's, it's very difficult to change that because if you change that, you're also changing part of your identity. It's much easier to sort of compromise on an ideology, but when it's about your identity, about your language, about your culture, about your history, it's mm -hmm. much more difficult. Mm -hmm. I am fascinated by some reports coming in as we're recording this, that uh, British defense intelligence is, is reporting that the Russians are putting their own mayors into Ukrainian cities that they've held. Obviously, they've not taken any major cities, except for possibly Kherson in the south. But in smaller towns, the Russians are taking down the Ukrainian flag, putting up a Russian flag, and putting mayors in place that are friendly to them. Perhaps that fits into this narrative of, you know, Ukraine is Russia, and we're, we're simply preventing a big bad NATO from coming in and making Ukraine a threat to us. But I have to wonder whether that's going to backfire when in all of these places, the Ukrainian people sure looks like they're not going to accept these, these shadow rulers. No, they, 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 they sure aren't. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm sitting in London as we speak, and, and my president, Sauli Ninesto, is doing a lot of excellent shuttle diplomacy. He was in Washington, D.C., seeing Joe Biden. He's now here in London seeing Boris Johnson and also actually Baltic and Nordic uh, leaders. Now, he had a phone conversation and uh, talked with Putin the other day and, and talked about it on CNN yesterday. And he said that Putin had said that he never intended to change the government in Ukraine. <laughs> and, you know, this is, again, this is one of these things people have to understand that in the Russian language, there are three words for truth. And one of them is tactical truth. So basically you can lie into the face of anyone and you just nod because people understand that you're making that lie for the collective good. And I think that was one example. So of course he's trying to put marionette uh, governments in, in, in there, but it's not gonna fly. The Ukrainians wanna be European. And here's a final point I wanna make on that. A lot of people are making this into an issue of NATO expansion. I think that's part of it, but it's also really, really, 
about the, the sort of value base and the soul of Ukrainians. Do they want to be Russian or do they want to be European? And what we've seen in actually 2007 with the Orange Revolution, actually, and then also in, in 2014 with Maidan, and now in 2022, they want to be European. They don't want to be Russian. And heck, you know, if, if, if the Russian president is willing to slaughter his brothers and sisters and cousins in Ukraine, no wonder they want to turn to Europe. This gets to the point of what Putin actually knew about that dynamic and what he didn't. The former foreign minister of Russia, Andrei Kozarev, said this week that senior security officials in Russia would be more likely to overthrow Putin than they would ever be to give him bad news, to tell him objective analysis in the way that, in the United States at least, that is a core principle of the intelligence and security services. You tell truth to power so they have an objective view of what's going on in a situation. Whether they want to hear that news or not, your job as an intelligence officer is to tell the president the best assessment you have. It sounds like that's not happening in Russia, at least according to his sources. He said they are unlikely to tell Putin something he does not want to hear. Do you believe that Vladimir Putin really understood the Ukrainian desire to be part of Europe? Or was he so wed up in his mythology that nobody wanted to tell him the truth on the ground? You know, I don't know. I would assume that someone like Kozarev would know because he's been, you know, close uh, to the situation. Having said that, you know, the Russian sources that I have and that I've been communicating with, their narrative about the situation is very similar. You know, they talk about the denazification of, of Ukraine. They talk about, you know, Russophobia and the way in which the West has uh, denied genocide in Luhansk and Donetsk and, and these kinds of stuff. So, you know, even if he is, is not fed that information, he probably believes in it. And, you know, he, he believed, and, and in many ways, I think he underestimated uh, the, the resilience of the Ukrainians. And also, I must say, the brilliance of the leadership of President Zelensky and his whole team. And, and, and he probably believed that, yeah, of course, you know, it's in the Russian soul. They want to be Russian. Uh, just like Belarus does. And, and I think it's an old-fashioned way of, of looking at things. And um, in that sense, I think he failed. I don't know whether he's been told the truth or not. I guess uh, in the United States, if I may, there was a slightly similar situation after your last presidential elections in January uh, 2021 and with the regime change uh, there. There, I think the intelligence and the, the sort of how do I say, uh, advisors of uh, President Trump were telling him the truth, but he just didn't want to believe it. I'm not going to argue with you there. Um, let's go back to where we started about discussions toward a ceasefire. Obviously, this is a different situation than, than Georgia, but the Russians and the Ukrainians are still talking. And Zelensky, as of the most recent I've heard from him yesterday, Zelensky actually sounded quite positive. He was putting a lot of emphasis on the talks being productive, and they might actually bear some fruit within a few days. How optimistic are you that there can be a, a credible ceasefire that actually would help us resolve the larger conflict? Or is that just a pipe dream? You know, I don't know. 
the first observation you have to make is that it's not exactly like they have their top diplomats doing the negotiations. Yeah, there was a meeting, uh, I think, in Turkey between the foreign minister of Ukraine and, 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 and the foreign minister of Russia. But you don't have a real mediator there. And you usually need a big gun. You know, we were the small guns with Bernard Kushner in 2008. And then the big gun, Sarkozy, uh, came in. And I don't think we are at that stage yet. And I don't know who could be the neutral broker there, you know, because this is very much a, a binary conflict and it's very difficult to be, be neutral on it. Certainly on the European side, you know, we are with Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, both hearts and minds. Israel is trying to, to play that role. Yeah, Israel is trying, you know, whether that works or not, I don't know. Of course, on one hand, you know, my, my heart says that it would be lovely to have a ceasefire. But my brain says that we're pretty far out, especially with the demands that, that Putin has. And you see, Putin, this is too big for Putin to fail. You know, if he has to retract, which I think would be the only right thing to do, then he's finished, right? He's not going to be able to, you know, spin that back home that I went there and slaughtered X amount of people and also young Russian boys and say that, you know, this was a victory for us. So I don't know, you know, I think, I guess in, in broad terms, there are three options here. One is that he pulls back, uh, which I don't believe personally. Two is that he tries to split Ukraine into two, and that's why he's going after Kiev. So it'll be very much a East Ukraine, West Ukraine type of a situation. And the third one is that he just tries to destroy the whole country, infrastructure included, and create sort of a, you know, new Bosnia to a certain extent. So, you know, option number one is the best one in a difficult situation, but probably more likely to move towards option two or three. And frankly, probably the option most likely to cause disagreement in the West, because there would be some in the West who would say if the Russian advances stop and they, they stop firing on civilians and they don't try to take any territory farther into Ukraine, that that's a good thing because the spring stops. Others would say, but look at what they've done already. This can't be the new status quo of Russian domination of extra territory in Ukraine. And I fear that it actually could cause the, one of the goals that he wanted in the conflict, which is to cause disunity across the West. Yeah, in the long run, that's probably the case. And we don't know how this is going to end. And of course, if you look right now at the areas which he has allegedly conquered, it's very much you know, patchwork like a Rubik cube to a certain extent all over the place. And, and, you know, we can't have that as a status quo. We can't even create a, you know, frozen conflict. And, you know, if the price of a frozen conflict in Luhansk and Donetsk and then the retraction is, you know, again, a few thousand people dead and the total destruction of infrastructure in Ukraine, the disruption of, of say, you know, wheat exports and the rest of it, I think, you know, the, the, the cost is simply way too high and the West can't accept that. And this is, you know, we're starting perhaps to move towards the phase where, you know, realism meets idealism. To a certain extent, the idealists are saying, okay, let's have the ceasefire. Let's try to have a Ukraine which is neutral, a Ukraine which promises they're not going to go into NATO or the European Union. And then the realists say that no way, this is never going to, because, you know, in my mind, the only thing that Putin understands is power. And, you know, there's this old saying about Stalin that apparently, allegedly, he said that if you have a bayonet, so the sharp end of a rifle, and if it, if it sort of touches something soft, 
push it in. But if it's hard, you know, pull it back. And I think with Putin, the only thing they can do is be hard. There's no point in being soft with him. Otherwise, he'll just go to full Monty. You know, this goes back to something that the Polish prime minister or foreign minister, I can't recall which, said back in 2008 when visiting Tbilisi in Georgia. He said, we know very well that today it is Georgia. Tomorrow it will be Ukraine. The day after tomorrow, the Baltic states. And perhaps the next one in line will be my country, Poland. You mentioned earlier that the opinion polling in Finland, and I will add also Sweden, have shifted dramatically in the last two weeks on the issue of NATO membership. So combining that with what the Polish uh, official predicted back in 2008, when you were in the, the midst of the Georgia discussions, do you think this has fundamentally reordered Western conceptions of security in Europe and that there will be a lasting effect to this? Or do you see that it kind of fades away if Russia does, for one reason or another, back down? I know you've talked about Finland's membership in NATO for some time, but you seem a little down on the prospect of that happening quickly for various reasons. How do you see European order shaping up because of this shock to the system? Sure. I mean, three observations on this. The first one is simply to say that you might want to go back to a speech that I gave a few days after I returned from Belicia, Moscow, to our ambassadors. It's called 080808. And in that, I predicted that uh, we were looking at a permanent shift uh, in the security architecture of, of Europe because of Russian aggression, spheres of interest, uh, you know, territorial integrity, sovereignty, and, and, and the rest of it. And I also, at the time, again, said we need to start a serious debate about Finnish NATO membership. And I've been an advocate for Finnish NATO membership since 1995. I think we should have joined at the same time when we joined the European Union. Second observation, yes, we have to start from the premise that this is not going to go away. Remember, the Soviet Union attacked Hungary in 1956, attacked Czechoslovakia and Prague in 1968 and you know this is this is bigger than that this is even bigger than that at the time so we will see a totally utterly and completely isolated russia this is not going to go away it's going to be isolated like south africa was during apartheid or like you know north korea is is at the moment and this has ramifications for the security structure we have a totalitarian authoritarian russia versus an alliance of democracies in, in, in Western, Central and Eastern Europe. And then this brings me to my third point about NATO membership. Now, the listeners have to understand that the shift in Finland and partially Sweden as well has been radical. So previously used to be 50% against NATO membership, 20 in favor. Overnight, it turned to 50 in favor, 20 against. And the latest opinion poll we had was 62% in favor and 16 against and 21 undecided. So, you know, the next opinion poll that we're going to see on this, we're going to be north of 70%. So the train has left the station. It's absolutely clear. But you also have to understand that we have 1,340 kilometers of border. So even though, you know, our hearts are saying, let's go in right now, what we need to do is think short-term and long-term. Short-term, get maximum security guarantees and help. Have a credible independent defense. You know, talk to the Americans, talk to the Brits, talk to the Nordics, and make sure that supply lines are there in case of an attack from Russia. 
in the long term, make a roadmap towards NATO membership. So what I have said, and I say this, I guess, more as an academic than as a former politician, a NATO application in the Finnish case is not a question of if, but it's a question of when. And if you ask me when, I say it's not a question of days, it's not a question of weeks, it's not a question of years, mm. it's a question of months. And for a small state to survive existentially, it has to be perfect in timing. And I don't know exactly when the timing is going to be, but I think basically if it's announced at some stage, it's going to have to be a done deal. It could be based on Article 10 of, of NATO, which basically is an invitation by the NATO states to take us in. But there are interim periods there with ratifications and others. So, yeah, I uh, hope you guys welcome us into NATO. <laughs> well, it seems to me that the point you made first is just as important, which is during that process of perhaps months, there needs to be some credible security guarantee and enhanced bilateral relationships, uh, because yeah. that is perhaps the most vulnerable time. Yeah, and we are we're fortunate in Finland that we didn't run down our military after the Cold War. As a matter of fact, we hiked it up, including at the time buying over 60 F-18s from the U.S. And now we just purchased another 64 F-35s. We're completely NATO compatible, more so than many NATO member states. <laughs> Absolutely. Alexander Stubb, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Nice talking to you, David. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the podcast, rate the podcast, and go on all the social media to let people know about the podcast and our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and The Aftermath, our series on the government's response to the events of January 6th. Also remember, you can support Lawfare by becoming a material supporter at patreon.com lawfare where you get access to special events, ad-free versions of some of our podcasts, and other content. Remember, we also have these Lawfare Live events, like the one coming up on Thursday, March 17th, where Senior Editor Scott Anderson will answer your questions about sanctions against Russia. This episode was edited and produced by Jen Patya Howell. Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo was our audio engineer. Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.